Thank you, band. That was awesome. I like that song a little more every time I hear it. I liked it the first time, so I'm really digging it. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Amanda Neppel, and I'm uh, really, thank you for that, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I am really excited to be here with you all this morning. As John said, um, it was actually uh, two years ago this month uh, that I uh, transferred over to the West Des Moines campus, uh, and so it's really great for me to be back here with all of you today. It's great to see so many new faces. It's great to see faces up there in the loft. It's great to see uh, those of you that are sitting back uh, in the atrium a little bit. Uh, welcome. I'm so glad that you are here. For those of you that know me, I'm going to hit the big questions in case I don't get to talk to you afterwards. Number one, my kids are fine. <laughs> That's what you care about, right? Like I know. Um, uh, my kids are, I say that, but I want to put an asterisk on that um, because I do have three daughters who are all in high school. Thank you. Yes. All right. Good. Let's have coffee or something and you can talk me down. Um, yes. Yeah, so I have three daughters in high school. I have a senior, a sophomore, and a freshman. Uh, and then I also have a son. Just when I think I got like parenting teenage girls figures out, figured out I have a son who's going to be 12 this month. Uh, and so I'll relearn everything and that'll be great as well. Um, but anyway, that's the update on that. And Brian and I are good and you know, Whatever, it's all good, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, so this morning, we are kicking off a new sermon series, and we are starting in the Gospel of John this month. And our uh, series title, we always have catchy series titles so that you can kind of remember what's going on. Our series title is Sing Along. And it's appropriate that we have Sing Along as the title of this sermon series in the Gospel of John, because in so many ways, uh, John's Gospel is kind of lyrical. It's kind of poetic. Uh, we're going to look at a passage here in a little bit that kind of qualifies as one of John's more lyrical, poetic passages. Um, but it makes sense. And music does this really amazing thing. Like, uh, it helps us in so many ways process, process things that we're going through. Process our emotions. Um, a lot of you have songs that have meaning to you. Whenever it comes on the radio, it, it pulls up a memory for you, right? Good and bad, let's be honest. Uh, there are probably songs that have meanings uh, in your relationship. There are songs that you remember from your childhood, and um, every time that song comes on, there's um, a song, and I, the title escapes me right now, but I just remember this as I was saying, that every time it comes on the radio, I remember the smell of Dawn dish soap. I don't know why, but apparently I heard that song and I was washing dishes. You know what I mean? So music does this uh, really cool thing for us. It helps us express things that otherwise we might not have the words to do uh, through not just the uh, words that we hear in a song, but through the, the melody and the harmonies as well. The song that you heard just a minute ago uh, from the band is a Mumford & Sons song. Any Mumford & Sons fans here this morning? Yeah, yep, me too, absolutely. Uh, and that song uh, from Mumford & Sons is called Beloved, and it's one that the, the main guy, Mumford, Marcus Mumford, uh, that he wrote uh, as he was processing the grief of his grandmother passing. And he was able to be with her when she died. And you can hear that in some of the language that he watches his children play uh, at her feet while they're visiting. And he was able to be there when she passed. And so you hear those words, um, before you leave, you must know that you're beloved. He's saying, Grandma, before you go see Jesus, I just want you to know how much I love you. I just want you to know how much you've meant to me. 
And music does that in a way for us that maybe those words would be hard for us to say on our own, but, but in music we're able to experience those things. So, so in that song that we heard this morning, beloved, it's about processing grief. It's about those emotions and the sadness and things that we feel when someone who we love dies. And it just so happens that that's what our scripture reading was about today as well. John 11, uh, verses 32 through 35, is uh, just this kind of snapshot, this kind of moment in time of sincere, real grief, where Jesus and Mary and Martha are, are united in grief, they're united in pain, and united in this shared loss for Lazarus. It's a really, like, charged, dramatic scene. I mean, it is. There's, like, all of the emotions are there in this scene. Uh, and we read in, in uh, 33 that Jesus felt this, this anger stirring up inside him. And then we read in 35 that that anger led to Jesus weeping as he shares in this moment with his friends. If you grew up going to church at all, the story of Lazarus is a really, really popular one. I spent nine years, I think, uh, in children's ministry. And Lazarus, I probably taught Lazarus at least nine, if not 18 times, because it's a really good story to teach to kids because on the surface, it's really black and white. Uh, Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha were sad. Lazarus died. Jesus came. Mary and Martha talked to Jesus. Jesus told Lazarus to come out. Lazarus came out, and everybody was happy. And that is the end of the story. Amen. We could almost go home, but we're not. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, on the surface, it is pretty black and white. Uh, and so it's a great story to teach kids. And in fact, when I was talking to my 16-year-old uh, about preaching this weekend, she's like, oh, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I'm talking about Lazarus. And you know what she said? She said, oh, Lazarus is my favorite. And I'm like, yes, spoken like a, two, a true uh, preacher's kid, right? Lazarus is my favorite. And I said, yeah, what is it that you like about Lazarus? And uh, she looks at me like only a 16-year-old could do, and she's like, well, he was dead, and then he wasn't. <laughs> Point taken, sweetheart. I got it. I got it. Anyway, if we are going to kind of get underneath this, which you know that we're going to do, uh, we need to back up just a little bit. And so we're going to start uh, at the beginning of John's gospel. And for John, the beginning of his gospel actually starts in the actual beginning. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read this together. In the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. It goes on in verse 10, and I don't have this on the slide, but it says, It came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came into his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then verse 14, So the word became human and made his home among us. The word of God became human 
and made his home among us. And everything that John is going to tell us about Jesus really hinges on that, that it was God himself that came to earth to be with us. And John wants us to know, and this is why he sets up his gospel in this kind of lyrical, poetic sort of way, that it isn't going to be enough just to know who Jesus' earthly parents are. The other gospels uh, that we've talked about, last month we talked about Mark. Mark's all about the action. He has no time to talk about things like what happened when Jesus uh, was born. Uh, Matthew and Luke, they tell about Jesus' birth and they talk about Jesus' human parents and they talk about the lineage and all the things that came together and they talk about where Jesus was born and how prophecy was fulfilled in all of that. Uh, But John wants us to know that this story is a story of the capital F Father and the capital S Son and their relationship. And together with the Spirit of God, the breath of God, that they've been working on this creation thing together since before time even began. And so this person that John is introducing us to is this person who's always been a part of the plan, who is coming to show us who God is and what God is actually all about. And John says, because Jesus is the Word, because he is of the Father, it's not going to be enough to look at Jesus and say, oh, yeah, Jesus, nice kid, nice kid, good family, grew up, probably pretty smart, uh, good guy, good teacher, all those different types of things. But other than that, you know, lots of people are good and have good parents and good families. John's going to say, you know what, though? You're missing just a little bit of that because it's not just that Jesus was good. It's that Jesus was of and is of the Father. It's that Jesus is God that makes all the difference. And John is going to say, you know what? There's a light in the darkness. Where do you think that light comes from? John's going to say, I'm going to show you. Come and see. Come and see. John uses that phrase throughout his gospel more than any other gospel writer, come and see, because John believes that if you will, if you'll take a chance, if you'll follow along, if you'll come and see what this Jesus is up to, and you bring an open heart and an open mind, then you will understand that this Jesus is God on earth. And John wants to draw you into his gospel because he knows that if you really explore this with an open heart and an open mind, you're going to have to work harder to discredit it than you would to believe that it's true, miracles and all. The Jesus that John introduces us to is a healer. He is beyond time, right? Uh, He's a man of love. He's a man of conviction. John would point out that even though there's been a lot of good people come on the scene, this Jesus is a lot more than the latest and the greatest. This Jesus, this word of God, this is, he is the first and the last. This Jesus turns water into wine. He mingles with the outcasts as well as the religious leaders who are sincerely curious. And all the while, again, he just invites people, invites us to come and see, to come and see what the kingdom of heaven is really like, to come and see what it means to have the things that we hunger and thirst for truly and finally be satisfied, and to come and see finally that even in sin and death, while we grieve and while we have heartache, he wants us to see that those are not the final things. Those things don't get the last word. And this is the Jesus that John has been talking about in his gospel in chapters 1 through 10. This is where he has been leading us this whole time. Uh, chapter 11 is really a turning point in John's gospel. He's, he's, he's shown us who Jesus was and who Jesus is and the things that he said. And then he's going to... Uh, 
uh, pivot this here in chapter 11 with this final miracle that he's going to do. By chapter 12, it's Passover. And by chapter 13, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. So where we are at chapter 11, tensions uh, have gotten kind of to a fever pitch. And part of that is because of what happened just right before chapter 11, where we pick up. Uh, Jesus is, in, in chapter 10, Jesus is teaching around the area of Bethany, around the area of Jerusalem. And there are, are people and leaders there who are just, they're hearing what Jesus is saying, and it's kind of freaking them out. Because even though they're asking Jesus to clearly tell them who he is, Jesus is like, I really have told you like a million times. And also I've shown you like a million times who I am. So if you really want to know what I, who I am, here's the deal. The Father, capital F Father, and I are one. And they've been asking him the questions, and then when he tells them, they flip out, and they start looking around for nice rocks, you know, the kind that will fit nicely in your hand that you can really get a good grip on so that when you throw it, you can really do some damage. Uh, and so Jesus knows that this is what they're doing, and he says, listen, you were asking me this question of who I am, and I've told you, and I just want to point out that all of these good things that I have done have been the exact things that the Father asked me to do. So which one of these good things exactly is the one that you want to kill me over? Right? Jesus is like, come at me if you want, you know, uh, I guess, but I'm just doing what the Father has told me to do. And so things at that time, then, they're a little hot, a little hot to handle. So uh, Jesus kind of continues this conversation, uh, but then the crowd is really getting agitated, so he leaves. So that event, this kind of like the people wanting to uh, stone Jesus, is what made Jesus leave town. And then it's uh, what's going on with Lazarus that gets Jesus to come back. It's hearing about his friend Lazarus uh, and hearing that he is sick um, that brings him back. Lazarus and his siblings, uh, Mary and Martha, were good friends of Jesus. Uh, Jesus would have stayed with them when he was in the area. They would have been his home base. Uh, and so he gets word from Mary and Martha that his dear friend is very sick. There's only one reason that Mary and Martha would reach out to Jesus beyond their friendship. And that reason is because they knew that Jesus could do something about it. Like everybody else was there and, and uh, they weren't able to do anything about it, but they knew that Jesus had the authority and the power to do something. But instead of rushing in on their time, Jesus waits two days. And if you read the Gospel of John, he has the audacity to not even tell us what Jesus was up to for those two days, right? Like we just have to assume that it was important because that's why Jesus waited, you know? Um, so two days they wait, and the disciples have to be thinking that they have literally dodged a bullet or a rock, whatever the case may be. And um, then Jesus decides that it's time to go. And the disciples are not too happy about this. They're not excited uh, about going back to where everybody was so mad at them, but, but they go. And they make it to Bethany, and when they make it there to Bethany, they learn that Lazarus has been dead for four days, um, and Jesus comes face to face with these two women who he loves, who were, are his friends, and they had begged for his help, and their brother had died anyway. This is what we stepped into in our Bible reading. This is where we pick up, and it's tense. There's no, there's no two, way around it, two ways around it. Mary and Martha are devastated appropriately. And a crowd has gathered around them, and everybody's watching really closely uh, to see what's going to come next. 
Uh, and verse 34 tells us that Jesus then asked where Lazarus' body was. And now it's really interesting uh, because he asks where they've put him. And it's the people now that say to Jesus, Lord, come and see. Let's, we'll show you where we've put him. And it's so interesting because even as they are the ones inviting Jesus to come and see, they have no idea that in the waiting and in this delay and in all these little things that have seemed from their perspective to, to have gone wrong, that Jesus is actually inviting them to come and see something amazing and beautiful, something that they are never going to forget. But this is this moment, and then the next moment as they make their way there, John 11.35 tells us that Jesus weeps. And Jesus wept for the heartache. He wept for the loss of his friends. He wept as he looked around at the condition of you and I, people just like us 2,000 years ago. He wept as he looked at that. He knew, um, he knew what was coming for him. He was almost certainly processing what was next for him. And even as uh, he weeps and he goes to the tomb uh, to see Lazarus, he knows that this is going to make for a really cool story. Like people are going to talk a lot about what's going to happen here. But he also knows that in really just a few weeks, Mary and Martha are going to be weeping again, but this time they're going to be weeping for him. And he knows that even as this story of Lazarus uh, getting around is going to stir a lot of stuff up, again, he knows the next death is going to cost his own flesh, and he knows that the next resurrection is going to go on being a really cool story, but in fact... And in fact, it's going to change literally everything for all of us. And it's in this moment where Jesus has this understanding that literally no one else in the crowd has, uh, not a single one of them. And then he instructs them to move the stone. And this is so funny to me because he tells them to move the stone and then Martha completely loses it. She's like, Jesus, it's going, the smell's going to be terrible. Like we can't do this. Martha, who's always so worried about everything being just right. If you remember, Martha is the one who uh, her and her sister were bickering and, and Martha told Jesus, Jesus, tell Mary to help me right? Like Martha's really worried about everything going exactly the way it's supposed to. But this is so ironic to me because probably 30 seconds ago, if you'd asked Martha, she would have said yes, she would have given anything to have her brother back, right? And then Jesus is there and he's telling him to move the stone and she's like, oh, don't do that. It's going to be terrible, right? I just want to like give her a hug and just squeeze the control freak right out of her. You know what I mean? Um, but, and Jesus says to her very kindly, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm guessing it was like, Martha, Martha, love, like you, you asked me here, you know, uh, I told you that you'd see God's glory. Remember that? Uh, so, so how about if you let me do my thing, right? Uh, and so Jesus tells them to roll the stone away. The thing is this, Jesus is not one bit worried about the smell because he knows he's been aligning his will with the Father's will for the last four days. He's been praying constantly that this would come together in the way that the Father willed it to come together. And Jesus knows that the Father wants people to believe. He wants people to look at him and see that he is the Father's son. And Jesus also knows that, to be fair, asking the people to imagine that this kind of a thing is possible, that coming out of the grave after four days, he knows that this is a little bit beyond what their imagination is actually going to be able to handle at that time. 
But John, through his telling of this, is leaving us really no doubt whatsoever that, that Jesus, through this thing that he's doing here, through all the things that he's done up to that point, and through the fact that he came to us from the Father, is the word of God here in the flesh dwelling among us. And because everything was created through Jesus and will be created through Jesus, that that includes the resurrection of Lazarus. John wants to remind us it's in this darkness where things look beyond what we can imagine that Jesus shows up and is the light no matter how dark the darkness is. John 3.19 tells us that uh, the people loved the darkness more than they loved the light. And because we love the darkness more, uh, we reject Jesus. And there are certainly uh, people among us, you unfortunately don't have to think too hard, uh, to think of people who just do what they want to do and they don't really care who gets hurt and the crossfires of that, like what, what the implications of their behavior are. Behavior are. But I think if we're all going to be honest about that for a minute, I think uh, many of us, we just kind of prefer what we're comfortable with, you know? Like you're sitting in the dark and someone flips on the light switch and you cover your eyes and you're like, oh, turn it off, right? It can be uncomfortable for us. It's painful as we try to adjust to it. And I think this happens to us and I know that it was happening with Mary and Martha and the crowd that was gathered that day. Don't, I don't want to be hard on them. Don't get me wrong. Like I can't wait to thank them for the living example that they gave for us. Uh, but in their imperfect belief at this place, the best they could do was imagine that if Jesus had gotten there before Lazarus died, he could have done something about it. They couldn't imagine that Jesus could still create and make something beautiful after four days in the grave. And the people who were around at the time, you know, they said things like, come on, when they saw Jesus weeping, like, this guy healed a blind man. Surely he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. And the thing is, they're all looking for the light that they recognize. They're all looking for what they've seen before. They recognize that healing before death is possible because they've seen Jesus do it already. But in their mind, there is this imaginary place where the light isn't allowed to go. And that place where the light isn't allowed to go for them is like four days stinking up the tomb dead. That's where the light is not allowed to go. The light has no business there because there's nothing to be done. But Jesus. But the word of God that became flesh and dwelled with us. Uh, there's a family out at West Des Moines, uh, and it's uh, Mike and Susie Lowe, not going to be confused with the Lowe family that worships here at Hope Des Moines. Um, but Susie is on staff at the West Des Moines campus, and Susie and I work really closely together. Uh, and in, in addition to working together, we're friends. Um, she, if you've ever been to a women's or men's event at the West Des Moines campus, and I know that many of you have, what's the, the thing is, Susie's probably done 95% of the work to get us there. Uh, so she helps me and makes me look really smart, and she also helps helps Pastor Andy, for those of you that know Pastor Andy. So now you get a sense, really, of how hard this woman has to work. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, Susie and her husband, uh, Michael, had a child uh, born several years ago, seven years ago, that they named Aaron Michael. And they knew uh, when, when they were pregnant with Aaron uh, that his little body was incompatible uh, with life. And so um, I'm going to share their hope story with you now. Um, and I apologize in advance. <laughs> Let's take a look. I'm Susie. I'm Mike. And this is our hope story. 
In 2012, we had three children. We thought we were set and saw the light at the end of the tunnel for our kids to go off to school. And then we found out I was pregnant. Um, so at age 43, we were gonna have another baby. After the initial shock of that wore off, we were super excited about it. We began by telling our kids and our family. So that, everything was It was, was a happy day, very happy day. So we had the second ultrasound downtown, and um, when we walked into the doctor's office after that, she said, we see some things that we don't like. Either trisomy 18 or trisomy 13. Those words meant nothing to me at the time, but what I do remember her saying is it's not compatible with life. There could be a miscarriage, um, or it could go full term. We had no way of knowing. So we stepped out in the parking lot after that appointment and just cried, <laughs> sobbed. <laughs> it was different with the, each of our children, how they handled the news. You know, and they had the rainy days uh, like we did. We talked more and more about what that delivery was gonna look like with the doctors and our team. And I knew as soon as he was born, that was gonna be the end of his life. We went through the next eight months of terrible appointments and terrible days where we cried a lot. The, the, the fear of the unknown, the, the worry, the, the sadness, well, that, that tends to all channel into a, a river of anger at, at times. I woke up really early on the couch on September 18th, woke Mike up and we uh, headed to the hospital. It was about two o'clock that afternoon. We uh, delivered little Aaron. He didn't make a lot of noise, so they scooted him off to the side, and my first question to Mike was, is he alive? <laughs> and he was. <laughs> the room was full of people, but not knowing when that last breath was gonna come, it was really hard to pass him off. Pastor Richard came in and we had a baptism, and that was awesome. And then as soon as we sent my sister and the kids home, though, it started to look like he wasn't gonna make it much longer. I think I held him for an hour and a half, two hours, just keeping the oxygen on him and not wanting to let him go. There was one of the nurses there that was monitoring his breathing. Shortly after 10 o'clock that night, we said, is he gone? Because <laughs> we could tell he wasn't breathing very much. And at one point, finally, she nodded her head. When you sit in the parking lot of a funeral home to go pick out the casket for your baby, you go... When you should be picking out a crib. This this is wrong. This is very wrong. And God, why are you doing this to me? I wouldn't... <laughs> I'm, I didn't want to be pregnant in the first place. So why, why are you pulling this on me? It was really hard on everyone that knew us. One of our prayers throughout the whole pregnancy was that, that Aaron be born. He was a gift from God. And we held him, loved him. Then we had to give him back to God. Then we handed him back to God later that night. I think if we're honest, we all kind of have a place where we believe that the light can't or it won't go. And maybe that's because we haven't had to go to the depth of that place Exactly. Um, and we want to believe that if we had to, we'd be able to, <laughs> but we don't know. And if we're honest, we're kind of thankful that we don't know. I don't know what it is for you, but maybe you've prayed so long 
for an answer for something, right? Maybe you've prayed for someone who you love to know Jesus, uh, and it seems like there's just not any hope for that person. Maybe you've come to believe, like Mary and Martha did, that there's just nothing that Jesus can do uh, because you just haven't seen Jesus go to that place before. And I think we all have that place where we're just not sure. We hope that we'd be able to, but we're just not sure. The darkness is real. Let's not pretend that it's not. Let's not do ourselves a disservice and pretend that uh, there isn't a time for mourning because there is. Did you hear Susie say in there, um, <laughs> I didn't want to be pregnant in the first place. <laughs> like, this was not on my radar. This was not what I was wanting. And then, God, I did want it. I wanted it so much. And we couldn't have it. But this isn't a darkness story. <clears throat> it's a hope story. And so there's a second part to this. I want you to take a look. And I want you to look and I want you to look for the light, the light that's always there. Maybe we don't see it right away. Maybe we don't see it on those darkest days, but there's a light that's coming. Take a look. There were some days where you just ask why. Why us? Why this? Why does this have to happen? And other days where you're just clinging to God, saying, don't leave my side. I can't do this without you. In the depths of it, it was awful. It was terrible. You ask the why and you pray and you don't get the answer that you want. In the midst of planning a funeral, I had a dream one night of a little Emily, who was six at the time, leading me to God's hand so I could just rest in it, just, just lay down. Sometimes that's all you can do is run into his arms because I can't, I can't do it on my own. We had our Hope family to carry us through, family members and, and friends from Hope. God put them beside us to walk through that valley. So many people that were there for us. It was a place of healing. Hope was a place of healing. Mm -hmm. I never lost sight of his character. You know, I knew I had enough knowledge of God's heart and who he was and that he loved me to know that you know, I can't see the whole picture. But I know at some point, maybe seven years later, our story is going to be told and it's going to serve someone and it's going to serve God. Knowing that there's, apart from us, there's no one who can take better care of Aaron than Jesus and he's with him. We'll see him again one day and it's going to be a glorious reunion. There's going to be grief, but you're going to get through it and God will lead you through. I just rejoiced in the fact that I was pregnant. Running with baby Aaron, jumping on trampolines and just the joy that the pregnancy brought. How do I jump on a pogo stick seven months pregnant without you know, having that joy of knowing that God's got this? And she could do it. <laughs> the story of Lazarus. But why didn't he come right away? My, my child was dying. Why didn't you save him right away? Instead, Jesus came four days later after he died. But if he hadn't, all those people wouldn't have seen that miracle. We've met so many people since then and even, even during the pregnancy, individuals that we've known forever that said, this is the first opportunity that I've had to talk about this. We wouldn't have touched so many lives that we've been able to impact for God. Just knowing that I have a story to tell, that I've walked somewhere where other people are gonna walk, and I can help them through that.
He was loved from the moment he was conceived until he was gone, and still today, we celebrate him today. On Aaron's headstone, there's no dash. And you've probably heard the story of, you know, your life matters in the dash. And there isn't a dash. We know that wasn't the end of Aaron's impact on the world. I think he did more in his non-dash life than probably I have. It's nice to be able to share that hope with some other families that we've met along the way. In 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.13, Paul writes, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen, so we will not grieve like people who have no hope. Grieving is what we do because it shows that we loved well. And so it's not appropriate to not grieve. It's not appropriate to pretend that things are okay. Grief proves and shows that we loved one of the things that I love about uh, Mike and Susie, uh, and, and Susie in particular, is because every September 18th, uh, she takes the day off of work and she marks that day, um, oh, sorry, with her own ritual every year. Um, but she doesn't grieve like someone who has no hope. You saw those pictures um, of the turkey trot, uh, they, they do a race, uh, a fun run every Thanksgiving, and they raise uh, the money in, in Aaron Michael's name, and they give it to the Shine program at Methodist Hospital, which you hope that you never need it, but if you do, uh, you are so thankful that that program is there. <clears throat> we can see the light shine in what looks like impenetrable darkness. We can count on it. We can count on it. We're not just knowing that it's there because we just wish it so much, because we need to believe it. We know that the light can shine in the darkness because the darkness cannot be overcome. No matter how dark a room is, if there's a little bit of light, if there's a little bit of light, it can't be overcome. The darkness is kind of like a toddler over here, making a lot of noise, throwing a fit, wants you to know, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, right? And wants to keep you directed over there so that you don't see the light that's shining in the darkness over here. <clears throat> We've put our hope in the light. We've put our hope in this word that came, became flesh, and dwelled among us. It was through the word that everything was created, everything is created, and we will be created again. So we can live like people who have hope, who know where our hope comes from, who can claim the fact that the light shines, it shines, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Amen? Amen. Please stand and join me as we prepare our hearts for communion.